from Virginia Humanities. This is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week, along with our colleagues Ed Ayers and Joanne Freeman, we explore a different aspect of American history. We're going to start today's show in the wee hours of the 28th of June, 1969, with a police raid on a gay bar, a raid which would set off an earthquake that is still being registered today. From all accounts, it was a shabby place with watered-down drinks much too expensive. But I think that gay men in particular, and a few lesbians, loved the place because of the dance floor, which I have heard from a number of people who habituated the place, that it was the best dance floor in all of New York for gay people. That's the LGBTQ scholar Lillian Faderman. The name of the bar she's describing has entered the iconography of gay life. Officially, it wasn't even a bar. They did not have a liquor license. It was supposed to be a private club. And when you came, you were supposed to sign in. People signed in with names such as Donald Duck and uh, Mickey Mouse, and that was the way the mob supposedly got around getting a liquor license. Run by the mob, the shabby Stonewall Inn was about to become a flashpoint in the battle over gay rights. Christopher Mitchell is researching New York City's queer economic and cultural history from the 1940s to the 1970s. What was Greenwich Village like in the late 1960s? One of the things that's happening in the 1960s is you see more and more businesses and more and more economic activity that's geared towards queer consumers. Stonewall is open a couple years before the the riots, and it's written about in gay guides that are published in the late 1960s as a place that is fun to go to because you can dance and you can find cute people to hook up with. But there's also this idea that you should beware of the Stonewall Bar and beware of the people that work there. There's a warning in one of the Mattachine guides about blackmail and the fact that Ed Murphy, the skull, the infamous enforcer, is taking people's personal information and then blackmailing them with it. One of the gay men living in Greenwich Village 50 years ago was the novelist Edmund White. At the time of uh, the Stonewall riot or uprising, I was 29. I was working for Time Life, not for Time Magazine, but for their book division. And I was living in the village, and I was sort of a office worker by day and a beatnik by night, and going out to discos a lot. I would come home from work, go right to bed, then wake up after my disco nap around midnight, and then go out on the prowl. Stonewall was two big rooms. People think of it as a disco, but it really just had a jukebox. It had a lot of gay favorites uh, on the jukebox. When you entered, it had a long bar on the right. In order to enter, it had a small door. You had to go past, it was a mafia bar, so you had to go past a kind of big, fat mafia guard who had a dead cigar in his mouth. 
and who would sort of, if you looked gay enough, would let you in. And then you'd go to the bar, which was horribly unhygienic because they didn't have running water, and they would uh, wash out their glasses in dirty water. It was really pretty awful. And they charged more than people ordinarily would. But you could buy a beer, which was, I guess, safe enough. In the first room, people danced around the jukebox, but never more than 20 people. And then in the next room, there was a, a, it was dark. They did just sit quietly on banquettes along the wall and talk and, uh, and kiss, maybe. I don't know. When I first started going, it was mainly just white boys who lived in the village. But by the time of the Stonewall Uprising, it was mainly kids who were coming down from Harlem, black and Puerto Rican kids who were a different population, really, and probably much fiercer than the silly white boys would have been. I mean, that is, when there was an actual uprising, they were kids who were used to confronting the cops and fighting back. In the wee hours of June 28th, the police raided. Nothing unusual. They often did that. Uh, They would come in, ask to see people's IDs. Uh, If uh, the ID didn't uh, suggest that they were a minor or that they were trying to, quote, pass by disguising themselves as the other gender, quote, unquote, People would then be released, and those that there was any suspicion about would be arrested. Well, this time, when people were released, what would usually happen if somebody was released in a raid is they would just run off. They would just be so happy to have gotten away without being arrested and taken down to the police station. But this time, people uh, got out of the Stonewall and didn't run off. They stayed around waiting for their friends, and eventually... A crowd accumulated. The writer and historian of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, David Carter, agreed to meet Backstory outside the Stonewall Inn in New York. Well, essentially people collected in the street outside, and the the crowd grew and grew mainly from passers-by. And the feeling in the crowd went back and forth between humor and anger. And uh, when the first patrol wagon came up to take prisoners away, the, the, the mood of the crowd darkened. And then they saw some people who were exiting being treated roughly by the cops, so that would make them angrier. And what really turned it was there was a lesbian who was, uh, was in handcuffs, apparently been uh, hit on the head inside, was being brought out, and she was struggling with the police. They put her in a patrol car. She escaped. She tried to get back inside the Stonewall Inn. They put her back in. She escaped again. And she fought them ferociously and was being, you know, uh, treated roughly by the police. And she said to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And so the third time, they, they heaved her bodily into the patrol car, and that's when things erupted. And then when the police retreated inside the bar, that made the crowd even, how can I say, uh, that really unleashed the full fury because they felt we have the upper hand. They retreated. 
Well, being a little middle-class twerp, I, I, of course, didn't like the idea of people being violent and protesting the sacred police. So my first reaction was to try to say, oh, come on, guys, let's calm down, just calm down, run away. But then the excitement of the protest unleashed all these feelings, even in me. People began to chant, Gay is good, which was supposed to be a a parody of Black is Beautiful. So right away, I think people began to see themselves as an oppressed minority. And, And in a way, you could say the most important thing that happened at the Stonewall Uprising was that gays went from feeling that they were a diagnosis to feeling that they were a minority. The cops had a a big paddy wagon, a black Mariah, out front, and they hauled off. There were like maybe 20 people who worked in the bar, and they were all hauled, or half of them were hauled off. And, they, and then cops stayed barricaded inside the bar with the rest of them, and the, the truck would come back and pick them up too. But we all started protesting. I mean, some customers were also arrested, the more flamboyant ones, uh, but it was mainly the staffs. So anyway, while the, the cops were away and the other cops were barricaded inside the bar, people began to use battering rams. They pulled up parking meters and began to ram the doors, which were very heavy, thick wood doors, with with these battering rams. They t- would take... Um, um, waste paper out of waste baskets and throw it against the door and light it with a lighter. And so it was all, you know, that was the period when people were pretty violent and uh, even in protest. And then the, the cops sent reinforcements and pretty soon the whole area was a, a, a war zone. People were just grabbing anything they could grab that they could throw. Um, there was some construction going on up here at the corner. They a pile of bricks. They were able to access to bricks there. Um, because there was a trench cut in the street, it was easier to get hold of cobblestones. At this time, the street was not asphalt, but cobblestones. Uh, there were Belgian blocks and the uh, pits around the trees here. Now it's then. Um, so there was a parking meter that had been hit by a vehicle. It was loose. And that was uprooted to attack the doors of the stone wall and the wooden backing behind the two windows. Um, people went to this cigar store right there and got lighter fluid and tried to set the place on fire. Um, tra- a trash can was set on fire and thrown through the window. Um, before that, just a trash can had been thrown through the window. It was one of the first things, just break the glass on this side uh, with a trash can that was right next to. Now you see the trash cans are in containers. Back then they were just sitting on the street. Everybody after the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, you know, every minority was standing up for itself. Everybody that had agreements was standing up and, you know, uh, complaining and demanding change and getting in the news. So I think that was part of what it was too. It's like, well, if everybody else is standing up and, you know, uh, demanding their rights, why shouldn't we? Martin Boyce was a patron of the Stonewall who took part in the riot. This is how he remembers that night. 
It's a huge riot. And the loudest thing in a riot is silence. The whole street is silent. And the most important thing for us was to provoke the police to attack us because then we had time to run. Had they attacked us unprovoked, we didn't have any time to get ready for what they were going to do. And um, there's a thumping. The crowd parted. And here comes the tactical police patrol. I mean, in, like testosteronic drag, shields, face shields, gas, clubs, guns, everything. They're made to put down a major riot in a major way. Uh, and they came, we just looked, and they looked. I could not believe they were called in to fight a bunch of Nelly Queens. But they didn't attack right away, so we had to provoke that. And it's uncanny the way a herd can think, sometimes so properly, so rationally. I would never thought that, but this was very rational. We all grabbed each other and made a, fame, a kick line, did a rocket kicks, and sang one of our ditties. We are the village girl, we wear our hair, and the police attacked. That was the first time they attacked me. And you could see that if we kept this going and kept them chasing, and we look, we know the village like the Indians through the forest, we could wear them down because their drag was too heavy. All that equipment, and sure enough, they were worn out very quickly. Well, it was a, a feeling of valor, comradeship, something we never felt. We always felt like we got out of something. We were the victims that got out of something. Here we were the perpetrators that got into something. That was a good feeling, because Queens didn't feel that way much. It was so dramatic. It was the first time that gay people fought back in huge numbers. Not the first time that that they protested. There had been uh, significant protests of police raids in Los Angeles at a bar called the Black Cat, another one at a bar called the Patch. There had been protests in San Francisco of, of police raids in the Compton's cafeteria. But it was the first time, I think, that huge crowds gathered and were angry enough to throw things and to fight back, and and the raids went on for several nights. But the violent clashes with the cops were motivated by more than just a botched police raid on a single gay bar. It took place at a time when civil rights struggle of all kinds were daily in the news, and political activism was increasingly direct and confrontational. Lillian Faderman. This was at the very end of the 1960s. This was June in 1969, a, an entire decade of activism and angry responses to authority. There was the black civil rights movement. There was the anti-Vietnam War movement. There was the women's movement. There was a Puerto Rican movement. And New York was so much the center of all of these things. And so young people on the nightly news would would see that there was a lot of anger out there, and the anger was often demonstrated by riots or angry protests. And I think that the young people who were at the Stonewall that night were very angry, too. The, uh, the Stonewall had recently been raided, and this was another raid, and other gay bars in Greenwich Village were raided. And so I, I think the, the mood of anger had been brewing throughout the decade, but it, it came to a head that night. The media did not get it. The New York Times had a little article about the Stonewall raids, 
on page 33, talking about how policemen had been hurt in a melee at a Greenwich Village bar. And that was it. That was the emphasize about the policemen who were hurt. The Village Voice had articles that two reporters wrote, very detailed articles, but for the most part mocking about the gay people at the Stonewall Inn. Another New York paper had a headline that said uh, that a a nest of uh, homosexuals was raided and, quote, the queen bees are stinging mad, sort of mocking the anger of the gay kids at the Stonewall. Other newspapers elsewhere around the country didn't pay much attention to it. There was even at that time a new gay newspaper in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles Advocate, which became and still is the leading LGBTQ magazine now in the country. But they thought that it was something significant that kids at the Stonewall Inn fought back. But for the most part, not much attention was paid to it except in Greenwich Village. And I think Stonewall has become the icon that it's become Because just a few days after the riots, young people gathered and started a new organization called the Gay Liberation Front. The uh, radicality of that organization is indicated just by its name. It was named after the uh, communist uh, Vietnam National Liberation Front. This was, after all, the, the days of the protests against the war in Vietnam, and many of these young people had been involved in those protests. The Gay Liberation Front, just the name caught the imagination of, of uh, gay people all over the country in various cities everywhere, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and Philadelphia, groups propped up using a, that name or a name similar to the Gay Liberation Front. But I think the most important thing that the New York Gay Liberation Front did is they decided that the riots needed to be commemorated. And so one year after the riots, they they decided they wanted a a big parade throughout New York to to celebrate the fact that gay people finally fought back. And it was a pride parade, and they asked other cities to join in. Los Angeles did. Los Angeles had a parade commemorating the riots the same time in uh, June of 1970. It was a big parade down Hollywood Boulevard with about 1,000 people. San Francisco had a very small march, and Chicago had a small march. But that was the beginning of the pride parades that every year commemorated the riots. And of course, now, The pride parades are all over the world to not only commemorate the Stonewall riots, but also to celebrate LGBTQ people, as we call the community now, and to demand LGBTQ rights. So today on Backstory, we're tracing the long-term impact of the Stonewall uprising. 